for you individually and for me as well. That is powerful. And uh, the other, another thing that the Reformation did is uh, millions of men and women risked and gave their lives to translate the Holy Word of God into common languages, never before done, and given to the people to read so that you now... Those of you who have a, you have a copy of the Bible, have you ever, any of you ever read the Bible in English? <laughs> it's a, that is an amazing gift that not all God's people have had. And millions of people risked and gave their lives to make that happen for you. And that started 500 years ago. Now, I love the Reformation, but one thing that happened in the Reformation that was tragic and horrible and evil, let me tell you, when you give the Bible to people in their own language, what a joy that is. But here's what happens. I read the Bible for myself. This is your Bible here, isn't it? Okay. So I read the Bible, and I say, you know what? I understand it slightly different than you. And I understand it slightly different than you. And what starts happening, the sin in my heart and in all of our hearts, we begin to divide. And brothers and sisters, this is where denominations came from. It came from me reading my Bible, you reading your Bible, you reading your Bible, and we come with slightly different, and they are different, slightly, (laughs) slight differences. And then we say, I say, my way is better than your way, and it's better than your way, so we're not going to worship together. That's where denominations come from. And... uh, That is the heritage, that is the evil heritage of the Reformation. And on Reformation Sunday today, we have a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, and a Wesleyan church coming together to worship. And that fills my heart with joy. And we are going to hear the Bible preached in our own language because of the Reformation. And in healing of the Reformation, we are coming together in Christ. I'm so excited about that. Thank you for coming and being a part of this. Amen. Amen. Good morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. Can I get an amen, Amen. somebody? God bless you. My name is Reverend John Alfred Cradle, Sr. I'm the pastor of St. Joseph CME Church here in Chapel Hill. I'm a resident of Durham. I've been married to my beautiful wife, Lynette, who sits in the back for 28 years, and we have two beautiful kids together. And when I was asked to join this, um, I was actually pretty excited. You're looking at a man who was born in the 50s during a time of segregation when people of, of faith could not even come together and worship God. And I remember as I was going through seminary, uh, it was wonderful that when we got into chapel, it, doesn't, it didn't matter what color you were. Jesus died for everybody. Amen. The blood covers us all. Amen. And it was very interesting when I think about Paul and Asia Minor, those journeys in Asia Minor, when he was trying to form these churches and so forth, I can imagine he was dealing with an audience just like we have here today. It was an audience of diversity as he was bringing a new message to the Gentiles, those who had never met this man named Jesus before. What a wonderful opportunity this is for me as a kid that was born in a segregated community 
as a kid who was ostracized, even picked at, and even somewhat taunted by, and even oppressed by those who really didn't know Jesus. Because the word of God says, you will know my disciples by the way they what? They love one another. And love covers it all. Love transcends color. Love transcends ethnicity. Love transcends social economic conditions. God expects us to be a community of love. The world will never meet Jesus until they meet me and you. (laughs) And one of the wonderful things about discipleship that we, we really have got to get this, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got to learn to die to ourselves. Isn't that what Jesus did? He died to himself for the benefit of others so that we all could live. And when you die to your stereotypes, when you die to those racisms and those isms and all these other things that people are trying to instill in our spirit, it gives us the opportunity to embrace the beauty of God's creation. The word of God says that we were made in his image and he blew his pneuma, he blew his breath into each and every one of us and each and every one of us was worth dying for. It didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter who your parents was. It didn't matter how much money he had in the bank. You were worth dying for. You are a jewel to God. And we've got to learn to embrace each other that way. That's a song that I love, and we sing it sometimes. Reach out and touch somebody's hand. Make this world a better place if you can. That's what discipleship is all about. Making the world a better place. I'm excited about being here today, worshiping with you. I'm enjoying the worship experience. It's a little different for me. (laughs) Amen. It really is. I'm going to be honest about it. Amen. The music is different, but I'm enjoying it because I love music. The spirit of God is still in this place. Amen. Amen. And we serve a God of diversity because God made us all uniquely and wonderfully different. God made billions of people. Amen. Amen. And we are all uniquely different, but we're all special to God. That's why when Jesus broke the bread, what we don't understand sometimes is that there are over 300 different kinds of breads in the world. So it covers us all. It don't matter where you are, where you are, there's a substance that's similar to bread. So even if I'm in Cairo or wherever I may be, when I break that bread, I'm still breaking Jesus. Amen. Amen. It is a blessing to be in the house today. I'm looking forward to this worship experience. God bless you. I look forward to us doing this again. I got so excited, I forgot about the prayer, amen? <laughs> amen. The word of God says we should pray at all times, pray without ceasing. And that's to, for the benefit of putting God before all of our situations. Because when we learn to do that, then God can go before us and God can clear out the pathway of our day, our journey during the day, be it physical or be it spiritual. When we invite God at the beginning of our day, it helps our day. Amen. Let us bow our heads. Oh, wise and eternal God. You are the Alpha. You are the Omega. You are he that even created time. You're the same God that loved us so much that you sent your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. What you showed us, O Lord God, is that love is all about giving because the first action that you did, Lord God, is that you gave. 
And then, Father God, you gave us your best. You gave us your only begotten son right straight from your DNA, Jesus Christ. You let us know don't let nothing come between us and that relationship. Oh, Father God, bless your people today. As we come here together, oh, Lord God, we come with some issues. Father God, we come with some worries. We come with some heartaches. We come with some some burdens, oh, Lord God. But, Father God, as we celebrate you today, Lord God, we come into your house, this house today, oh, Lord God, with the spirit of expectation. And that spirit, oh, Lord God, is that whenever we're going through, Wherever we are in this wilderness experience, wherever we are in this journey, Father God, you declare in your word that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. You promise, oh, Father God, that you will be with us to the end of the age. Oh, Father God, bless your people today, oh, Father God. Lord God, let the light of you that's in us, let it illuminate wherever we are, that people will see and they will witness, oh, Lord God, that we serve a living God. He is not a myth. God still lives, and we need to be the disciples that God has called us to be. Oh, Father God, empower us on this day, oh, Father God, as your word go forward. Lord God, just as the singing went out, Lord God, and it tilled our spirits, oh, Lord God, that when your word go out, it will be planted in fertile soil on this day. Lord God, let us stand strong on your word. Lord God, when the winds of life blow blow against us, let us stand strong and confident and faith, oh, Lord God, of who you are. And who you've called us to be. Father God, continue to peel the layers off of us, O oh Lord God, as you take us out of the world. Because you call us out of this world. That we may live in a way that's pleasing in your sight. That we may love in a way, O oh Lord God, for those who never felt love before. Jesus said it so beautifully. He said, this new commandment I give you. In other words, the world has never seen anything like this before. It was brand new. A love that gave so much. A redeeming kind of love. A love that died to itself. Amen. Oh, Father God, give us that kind of spirit. That we would die to ourselves, O oh Lord God. Father God, you know the things that are going on in the world. There are wars and there's rumors of wars, oh, Lord God. There's famine and there's disease. There's pestilence. Oh, Father God, there's tsunamis and there's tornadoes. There's fires all over the world. There's earthquakes and places that never had earthquakes before, Lord God. The book of Revelation tells us, Lord God, in the end days that these things will happen. Lord God, let us cling closer to you, Father God. And, Father God, you said to be ye always ready. Help us to be ready, oh, Lord God. When the trumpet sounds and the sky opens up and the parousia, when the second coming of Jesus happened, and those that are in Christ will be caught up and the rest of us will be caught up in the air. Lord God, we will be worthy to ascend to that heavenly realm one day. Prepare our hearts, oh God. Lord God, tear us down and then build us back up, oh Lord God, in a way that's pleasing in your sight. And Father God, you ask in your word to pray for our leaders. God, we pray for the leaders of this country, oh, Lord God. We all know, we know, Lord God, that you have the power to change any man or any woman's heart, oh, Lord God, that you can take what's, what's bad and use it for your glory, oh, Father God. So, Father God, we lift up a prayer to our president on this, night, on this day, on the mayors and on the senators and on the governors, oh, Lord God. Lord God, bless our brothers and sisters that are in the military, oh, Lord God. Those that are serving abroad, Lord God. Some who may come back, but their minds may not come back. Bless them, O Father God. And bless this congregation. Bless these, your people on this day, O Lord God. Lord God, we celebrate you today. We celebrate the diversity of who you are on this day. Lord God, we thank you for grace. 
We thank you for mercy, O Lord God, for all else sin and felt short of the glory of God. For truly the wages of sin is death. Lord, have mercy upon your people. This we ask in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and the men and women of God said, Amen. Amen? Amen. All right. We can just go home, (laughs) y'all. That's beautiful. I love love you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jesus. This Tuesday, October 31st, 2017, a monumental day. Not only because it gives me a socially acceptable excuse to dress up like Batman in public, (laughs) <laughs> I got a short window while my kids are young. I can do it right now, all right? Show up when they're in middle school dressed like that, okay? October 31st, 2017, the 500th anniversary of the moment that launched what we know today as the Protestant Reformation. This protest movement of a group of people whose convictions were so rooted in Scripture, they were willing to push back against the corrupted tradition of the church, even though they knew their very lives were on the line for doing this. October 31st, 2017, 500 years since the day that Martin Luther went to the door of the Wittenberg Church and nailed those 95 theses there for everyone to see. Many of you are familiar with the character of Martin Luther, with this historical figure of Martin Luther, a brilliant person, even though he had terrible taste in hats, apparently. Um, A brilliant mind and a deep heart, this person who fell deeply in love with the person of Jesus, who wanted to please God with every fiber of his being, with every part of who he is. He wanted so badly to please God. When he was young, he was, uh, had dreams of becoming a lawyer and even was studying to become a lawyer. But he had this life-changing experience where he found himself in a deadly storm and he was so afraid for his life that he said, God, if you will save me from this storm because I don't even know what's going to happen to me if I die. I don't know what the condition of my soul is. If you'll save me from this storm, then I'll give the rest of my life to you. I will become a monk. Right? How many of us have made promises like that? Let's be honest, okay? You're like at that top part of the roller coaster, and you're like, listen, Jesus, wherever you want to send me. (laughs) Then you get off the ride, and you're like, oh, I'm good. Cool. All right? But he was serious about this, and he actually followed through. He changed his plans, and against his family's wishes, he went against the wishes of his father, and instead of becoming a lawyer, he became a monk, and he committed his entire life, surrendered to God, surrendered to God. And in this experience, he began to study Scripture, and he began to study it in a way that the other, as William was, was sharing with us so eloquently, in a way that the other people in the culture at that time couldn't. They did not have access to the word in that way. And as he began to study the word, something was shifting in his heart. And he continued to have this angst and this 
fear that he didn't know what the condition of his soul was. And he was afraid for eternity for himself. And he tried in everything that he did to please God and to win God's favor through all of these works, these religious works that he's stacking up, these pious works. He's piling on top of each other, but there was something unsettled in him. And he knew something wasn't right. And as he began to dig into the scriptures through the life of Jesus, through the movement of the church, through the letters of Paul. We're going to be in Ephesians today, digging into that through books like the book of Ephesians. Suddenly his eyes were opened and he began to discover the reality that salvation does not come by works. There's nothing he could possibly do to earn the love of God. That God did not love him because he deserved it. Quite the opposite. That's just the thing about Christianity, about the truth of the gospel. God doesn't love you because you deserve it. He loves you because he is love. That's who he is. He is a God of holy love because he's so holy. We could never hope to approach him. Nothing you could do would ever stack up and to win that favor and to earn it by your own merit. Nothing you could ever do will ever stack up. He's a holy God. And because he's holy, you cannot approach him. But because he is love, he came to you. The incarnation, the person of Jesus Christ Grace and love in the flesh, the mercy of God poured out on us in unbelievable extravagance, the incomparable treasures of heaven broken and poured out on us through Jesus. Luther got a hold of this and it absolutely shook him and it absolutely changed his life. Something else started to shift, though, as well as he realized this truth of the gospel. He began to see the corruption in the church around him. And he couldn't stand it. He could not stand it. And so he he zeroed in on one particular corruption where he started this practice known as indulgences. Have you ever heard of that? Here in the history of the church, they came up with this fundraising idea that was really effective for fundraising. Unfortunately, it's completely out of line with the heart of God. It was it was devastating. It was tragic what they were teaching. So they told people, listen, if you give money to the church, then that money will help spring you out of purgatory, right? Or somebody that you love that has died and passed on, you don't know what the condition of their soul is. They might be languishing away in purgatory. But if you give money to the church, then God will get them out and take them into his presence in heaven. They even came up with a slogan, like a little jingle for it, right? When a coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. He hated this. He saw it as a deep corruption, preying on the people who didn't have the scriptures there to set them straight, preying on the people. And so Martin Luther came out strong against this. He wrote what the 95 Theses just piece by piece, breaking this apart, talking about why this was completely out of line with the heart of God and the truth of Scripture, saying that Scripture trumps the tradition of the church and that this is our ultimate authority of truth. And he took it to the door of the church and he nailed it on the door of the church there. And that seems really bold. What you need to understand is that the church door at the time was kind of the community bulletin board, okay? It's like the kiosks on Franklin Street or the bulletin board at Starbucks, right? 
or Facebook where your grandmother posts her political views and you're like, no, grandma. Don't. <laughs> Just don't. All right. <laughs> so that's what it is. It's like this public place where he went and he made this public declaration, October 31st, 1517. And from that moment, unleashed what is known as the Protestant Reformation, this protest movement against the corruptions of the church. He also unleashed some Internet memes on that day. (laughs) (laughs) And then my personal favorite. (laughs) All right. The guy in the beard is like, I doth not get it. <laughs> What's his hammer time? Okay. Also, if you don't know what a meme is, then let's hang out. Okay. Because we're equally cool. Okay. Awesome. So from this bold declaration, the movement starts to gain momentum. More people are coming around this and the Catholic Church comes down hard against Luther. This is just a short sketch of, of, of what took place there. But ultimately, the Pope himself comes out with this statement declaring Luther to be a heretic. And it's this statement known as a papal boy. He makes this statement that says that Luther is completely out of bounds and actually is excommunicating Luther from the church. And in this day and in this time, it was understood that salvation comes through membership of the church. If you're excommunicated from the church, then you're out of the kingdom of Jesus. And that's what the Pope was saying to Luther. And how did Luther respond to that? He took that document and he publicly burned it. All right, that's hardcore. He's like pointing to it before he drops it in the fire even, right? Making this public declaration that his hope is not in the Pope. His hope is not in the tradition of the church. His hope is in Jesus Christ. And that he knows he is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. He is put on trial for this, and they they warn him to recant from this stance and from the other things that he has been writing. And they say, your life is on the line. You will die if you do not turn back and recant what you have said. And in this powerful moment, he says, here I stand. So help me, God, I can do nothing else. So help me, God, I can do nothing else. So he's sentenced to death as they're carrying him away and they're in like this wagon taking him away. Then then it's actually the caravan is attacked by bandits. Yeah, right. Donna. I'm with you, right? Attacked by bandits and he's kidnapped and stolen away. And as he's kidnapped and once he gets a safe distance away from that, the bandits reveal themselves to be his friends and they they have come to rescue him. So they carry him away to safety where he ends up translating the Bible out of Latin and into German, the language of the people, as William said. And Sparks continues to writing, continues to write, continues to spark this reformation, this protest movement against the corruptions of the church back towards the origins of the church. He also, in this process, married uh, Catherine von Bora, 
which is cool because he was a monk. So getting married is like this bold declaration, like that the, the traditions of the church. No, okay, he's breaking from tradition. It's one thing that he was a monk, but Catherine was a nun. <laughs> so it's like, you want to stick it to the Pope? All right. How about a monk marrying a nun? Okay. And for all of you edgy couples who think you're so funny, like dressing up for Halloween as a priest and a nun, the Luthers beat you to it. All right. They totally beat you to it. I love it. All right. So he marries her and she is involved in the Reformation as well. She's a sharp mind, deep heart, just like Luther. And, and it's said as quick witted, quick humor and, and, and as stubborn as Luther as well. And she becomes this leader behind the scenes in many ways. She managed the finances for them. She managed their farm. She managed the livestock. She farmed. She fished. She even ran a brewery. Okay. There you go. How about that? All right. She brought in peasants who had been discarded, who who had been seen as worthless. She brought them in and began to educate them and teach them to read. And so as the, the, the word is being translated into the language of the people, she's teaching them to read the scriptures. These forgotten people on the margins, she's empowering. See how the gospel is, is rolling out like that. She took in refugees who were fleeing from persecution. And it said that there were times when more than 40 people were living in their home. as she took them in and trained them and educated them. As she passed away and died, Luther died first. And as she passed away on her deathbed, her final words were, I will cling to my Lord Christ like a burr in a coat. I will not let go. The Reformation is beautiful. It was powerful. As William said, we also have to be honest about some brokenness of our heroes. And we have to be honest about that. One of the most tragic parts about Luther's legacy is the fact that in his writings you can find serious anti-Semitic language and sentiment. And let me just say publicly, there is zero room in Christianity for that. There is zero room for that. And if you are tempted towards that, then do you have any clue at all about what Christianity means? You must not. Jesus himself was intentionally Jewish. His disciples, Jewish. When God decided at the proper moment in time to become flesh, the incarnation, he didn't just become some generic human being. He didn't just become some blend of a bunch of different kinds of people. He intentionally stepped into flesh as a Jewish man. Stepping into a community of people who are some of the most oppressed people in the history of the world. One of their central storylines was that they, that they had spent hundreds of years in slavery. A part of who they were and Jesus stepped into that culture and into that people group and by the tone of his skin by his accent by the way he worshiped by what he ate he was fully and completely identified with the Jewish people part of the beauty of the incarnation the reformation we celebrate it 
is beautiful. But one of the things that we have to understand about it is that it was not actually a great leap forward for the church. We think of it in, in those terms. That, okay, this is a turning point and it's a great leap forward. It's not actually a great leap forward. Instead, it's a return to our roots. Who we were always designed to be as the church. It's not a new idea, but it's a reawakening to the core idea of the church. That we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not a discovery of a new truth. It's a rediscovery of an eternal truth. True from the beginning and true now. So we're going to read for a moment Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. And in this we find this core idea that spurred on the Reformation. And it's a core idea that's been at the heart of the church since the birth of the church. It's a seed that contains an orchard of gospel truth and fruit. Lean into this with us. So like the reformers in this passage here, Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus, this church that he planted of the unchanging truth of the gospel of Jesus and the unchanging hope found in the gospel of Jesus. Here's what he says. Verse one, as for you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Here it comes. Listen to this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And it is by grace you have been saved. We're going to pause right there for just a minute. Did you hear that? This is so beautiful. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead. In our transgressions. You were dead. You were dead. But now you are alive in Christ. Does that shake you? Remember that truth today. You were dead. But now you're alive in Christ. The whole sweep of scripture has been building to this. And pointing to this reality from the beginning. We get the story of Noah. As good as dead. Yet God provides rescue In the midst of the flood, Abraham and Sarah, as good as dead, it tells us. And yet God miraculously brings life where there was no life. Moses and the Israelites standing on the edge of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army bearing down behind them as good as dead. Until God miraculously opens a way into life for them. David facing down the giant as good as dead. Esther walking into the king's courtroom. As good as dead. Three boys in the fire, as good as dead. Daniel in the lion's den, as good as dead. Yet time after time, miraculous life is brought where people were as good as dead. You and I were dead in our transgressions. But it says that we're made alive in Jesus Christ by his, by his grace. The hope of the gospel of Jesus is exactly this right here. Here it is. We were dead and now we're alive. The hope of Jesus is not that he makes bad people good people. It's not that he makes good people into slightly better people. 
The hope of the gospel of Jesus is that he takes dead people and he makes them alive. That's the reality of the gospel. It goes on and it says this in verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There it is. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's an idea that shakes the foundations of the world. We could not do it. We could not do it on our own. We were dead and he's made us alive by grace through faith in Christ. A couple of weeks ago, um, Jason and I were walking down Franklin Street and um, I saw it. I saw that thing that you fear on Franklin Street since dread in your heart when you see it. It's that person with the clipboard. Who's like trying to get you to sign a petition, right? Or like donate money. It's a worthy cause. I'm I'm completely with it, all right? But they always get you at the worst moments, right? So you see this person with the clipboard, and we saw it. We're walking along, and and I'm trying to think of like how I'm going to get out of this. Like, can I do a spin move around this person? Like, Heisman, him, what am I going to do here? All right? And as we're talking, the guy speaks to us, and and I, I can't say no to people, all right? That's the problem I have. I just can't do it. And so he speaks to us. And so I stop and, and, and he gets me with this statement. He actually surprises me. He says, excuse me, sir. Do you know what the official tree is for the state of North Carolina? And Jason and I are like, excuse me, do you know who you're talking to? Like, we love North Carolina. Are you challenging our knowledge of the state of North Carolina? Is this a trivia contest? gauntlet dropped we are in all right and so <laughs> we're like well the state motto is essay quam videri, which means to be rather than to seem uh the state bird is the cardinal the state flower is the dogwood the state beverage is milk that's kind of not impressive all right should be cheer wine or sweet tea but it's milk um the state restaurant is cookout which i'm not sure that's true but it should be true okay and uh, the state tree, the longleaf pine, all right? The state tree is the longleaf pine. And he's like, well, did you know the longleaf pine is going extinct? And I'm like, you got me, man. All right, you got me. You stopped me on that. But as we talked with him, he made this statement that just stuck with me. And it's true when it's talking about caring for God's creation. Like as Christians, we would be hypocritical to say that we believe that God created and then us think it's okay to abuse what God created, right? We all get that's very hypocritical. Okay, that's just theological and common sense, okay? But he makes this statement. It might have been true for trees, but it's not true for the souls of human beings. And here's what he said. Listen, humans created this problem. Therefore, humans must create the solution. Humans created the problem, so humans must create the solution. 
It might be true for saving trees. It ain't true for saving souls. It is not true for saving souls. We cannot get ourselves out of the mess that we have got ourselves into. Our sin can only be overcome. Salvation only comes to us by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. It's by grace alone. The unfair love of God. The unmerited favor of God that he pours out on us and lavishes on us and calls us his children. It's through faith alone. The free gift that he gives, it can't be earned, but it must be received. And it can only be received through trusting God. Through faith. Placing our full trust in him as he draws us into himself. And in Christ alone, there is no other way. There is no other way. Jesus says plainly that the gate is narrow and the road is narrow and the way is narrow. But here's what we know. The gate, the gate is narrow, but the grace runs deep. The gate is narrow, but the grace runs deep. The road is narrow, but it stretches and winds to the ends of the earth. He's constantly going out of his way, pursuing us to the ends of the earth, to hell and back. And not even the grave could hold back his love for us. The way is narrow. It's only as wide as God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He goes on, he challenges us. We're God's worksmanship. We're a stunning mosaic of grace. Worksmanship for what? And what are these good works that he talks about us doing? Listen, good works will never produce salvation. It simply will not happen. It cannot happen. We're told very plainly. But as Paul continues this thought, he does flip it on there. And he says, listen, if you are truly saved, then this is what will flow out of you. The seed of salvation is planted in you. Then this is the fruit that will grow out of you as the Holy Spirit cultivates it in you. What is this work that we're told about look at verses 13 through 16 we're going to skip ahead a little bit but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new person out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. What is the work of Christ? It's reconciliation. It's reconciliation. You think I'm stretching that? We'll go back to Ephesians chapter 1, which basically is the thesis statement of the book. Here's what he says. This is the mystery of his will. Look at it in verse 9. This is the mystery of his will. He made known it according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Reconciliation is the work of Jesus. The next step. The obvious implication, the logical, the coherent overflow of this incomparable treasure that has been broken open, poured out on us 
the treasure of being reconciled to God. The obvious next step beyond that is to be reconciled with and to each other. As Reverend Cradle said, that's how they're going to know us. As Jesus challenged us by the way that we love one another. The reformation of the church is not over. Sin began as a break in our relationship with God. And salvation is the reconciliation of that relationship by grace, through faith in Christ. But it does not end there. It does not end there because sin also severed our relationship with each other. And we continue to see the ramifications of sin all around us. Manifested clearly in the evil of racism. In the systematic oppression of people based on their race or their status in life. Oftentimes what we see based on where they laid their head at night. On how much money they have in a bank account or whether or not they even have a bank account. The next great reformation of the church will not be to merely communicate our theology correctly. It will be to actually be transformed by our theology. That's where this thing is headed. More than memorizing and repeating the right words in the right order, we have to actually be reordered by the truth that we're studying. The next reformation will not come through simply the clear articulation of our theology, but the compelling application of it. The gospel of Jesus, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is disturbing. Remember at, at what happens at Ephesus at the planting of the, of the church of Ephesus when Paul stands up and he's prepared to speak and this riot breaks out. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 23, it says, There arose a great disturbance about the way. I love that, the way. That's what Christianity was originally known as, the way. Not just a collection of beliefs, but a way of living with and following after Jesus. There arose a great disturbance about the way. The gospel is disturbing. How has the gospel disturbed your life? How has it disturbed your life? How has it changed your life and transformed your life? But it goes beyond being disturbing. And what we see from Paul in this passage today is that it's not just disturbing, it's also destructive. The gospel of Jesus is destructive. It doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> Some of y'all are like, amen, question mark? I'm not sure that's right. But it is because it's destructive to the dividing wall of hostility. And it's destructive to the former barriers that I built up. It's destructive to my self-centric view of the world, to my self-centric view of history, to my self-centric view of our national narrative, to my self-centric view of politics, to my self-centric view of statues and flags and heritage and when to stand and when to kneel. The truth of the gospel of Jesus is destructive. To the former things that we simply accepted because that's the way it is. The gospel of Jesus is destructive to the dividing wall of hostility, dismantling it brick by brick, taking a wrecking ball to our divisions. 
This is literally what he's talking about in this passage. You think I'm stretching? Understand the context into which he's talking about. He's talking about two groups of people within the church who have been divided by their race. Two groups of people who were not allowed to be together. Two groups of people that when they entered into the temple to worship, there was a literal wall dividing where one group had to stop and they weren't allowed to go any further. As the other group went further into a place where they were only allowed to go. This theater used to be one of those places. This theater used to be one of those places only a certain kind of person was allowed in here. The gospel has taken a wrecking ball to our divisions. And in a shattered and fractured and divided world, the only thing that will break through the noise of division is a strange and compelling kind of unity. One where groups of people pause long enough to consider where the other is coming from. One where a group of people who call themselves followers of Jesus are willing to humble themselves as Jesus did. And lay down their rights as Jesus did. And enter into service of one another as Jesus did. What is the work of Jesus? Reconciliation. The Reformation is not over. The Reformation is not over. And what is it going to look like as it continues to roll on? It's going to look like this. Look again at verses 14 and 16. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier. The dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new person out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I'm going to ask William to come and to lead us in communion. In which we commemorate And physically enter into the memory of Jesus doing this through the cross. The gospel of Jesus is destructive, we just heard. There is no better illustration than what we've got right here. The gospel of Jesus is destructive. Jesus himself was destroyed on the cross. And that's why we are here. He was destroyed so that we could be put back together. He was killed so that we would have life. His body was broken so that we would find healing. His blood was drained out and shed so that we would have life and joy. He was divided so that we could be put back together. Um, He is the one who has brought us together. It was the night before Jesus died. He gathered his friends together, sort of like we are gathered here now. And He knew exactly what was about to happen. He wanted to give them a way to remember what was going to happen. And so he took bread and he broke it. 
He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this and remember me. And then after supper, he took the cup. We've got two cups here. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and remember me. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the table of the Lord Jesus. It's not my table. It's not the table of this church. It's not the table of your church if you're not part of this church. It's the table of the Lord Jesus. And so ministering in his name, I invite anyone who belongs to Jesus. This table is set by him for you. If you are not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. We are really glad that you're here. You don't have to be a Christian to be a part of what we're doing here. Uh, But this is the one thing that we're doing this morning that is for Christians only. Please don't pretend to be someone that you're not. Uh, We want you to feel authentic and uh, secure in who you are. All right? So uh, here's how it's going to work. In just a moment, uh, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to come forward. We're going to have... You love Chapel Hill people. Know this, what I'm about to say, better than I do. I'm going to try and make sure I get this right, the logistics of it. We're going to have two stations, right? One down here on my left and one in the front on the right there. And when I pray and invite you, come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup of juice, and then eat that, remembering his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. Is that right? Okay. All right. Just before I do, would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Our Lord and Father, we thank you for this bread and for this juice, and we ask that you would make them to be for us this morning the body and blood of our Lord Jesus, so that as we eat and drink, we would find uh, forgiveness for our many sins, that we would find strength for our weak faith, and that you would empower us by the Spirit of Jesus to move into the world reconciling the world to each other and to you. Father, give us the grace to walk the path, the reconciling path of Jesus. We pray these things in the name of our crucified, risen, and coming Lord, Jesus. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them knowing that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. Please, children of God, come to his table.